Good afternoon. I'm excited to debut our first podcast with an incredible guest, Dr. Jason Heller. Jason is a PhD in finance. He's got over 32 designations, professional designations, and he's a real professional in the industry. He's well known. He's got not only does he lead other financial professionals, but he also manages an existing client base of hundreds of millions of dollars. So he's very, very effective at his trade. He's a, a fantastic practitioner, and he's got a really, really credible background. So we're excited to share today the overview of, of financial life. And we're going to talk about unique stages of life. We're going to talk about what people should do when they're young adults, what they should do when they're young couples, when they're pre-retirees, retirees, all the way to distribution planning. There's lots of different tax implications of different products and services, and we're going to touch on those with Jason. Then we're going to dive into some different products and how they help you get there. Uh, there's different ways to get there more efficiently, and that's one of the themes of the Institute of Financial Wellness. We provide really unbiased ways of getting there most efficiently. And we have a, a, a saying when it comes to financial decisions, never say never, never say always, it depends. And um, Jason, thanks for being here. We're excited to have you. And uh, if you could start out by just talking about some of the, the different things that people should be thinking about at these different stages of life. And we'll start out with, with a young adult. You know, Take somebody who just graduated college, they're starting their professional career. What should he or she be thinking about? Great. Well, hey, Eric, thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it. Um, always fun to be with you. Uh, so just starting your career out, uh, it, it's typically a very tough position, right? You're more than likely you have some student debt that you have to take care of. Um, you're navigating your first real-world job opportunity, you know, summer jobs and working in high school and college. It's, it's different than, than starting your career out. Um, and there's a lot of competing needs and, and goals for, for your very limited dollars at this stage. And typically, the beginning of your career is the lowest income you're going to have. As your career blossoms, you get older, you get better at what you do, you'll make more money. Um, so you got to stretch that dollar as much as possible. Um, some of the things that, that we work with with our, uh, our our career starters, one, we have to tackle how we're going to handle the student loan debt, if there is student loan debt. Uh, number two, we, we make sure that they understand budgeting, just basic budgeting. Um, how much is coming in, taxes are taken off the top, and what what do we have left and how can we work with, with the rest of it? Um, the next piece uh, that I would say is, is, is relatively important is the... Um, uh, the, the concept of getting your basic uh, protection in place. What I mean by that is an emergency fund. So we like to believe, uh, uh, we believe that regardless of age, but especially when you're younger, you need to have, if you can, be working toward three to six months of your expenses built up in a cash position in case an emergency happens, in case your car breaks down, in case you got to go to the hospital for whatever reason. In case you, uh, uh, the fridge breaks, uh, you lose your job. You need to have some money set aside before you can even start thinking about some of the, the sexier things like investing or saving for retirement or any of that kind of stuff. You, you have to have some money set aside because when life happens, you need to make sure that it doesn't disrupt your entire financial plan. Got it. 
Excellent. And then what about people shifting, you know, now all of a sudden you're a little bit older, a little farther into your career. Maybe you're married. uh, Maybe you have young children. What are we thinking about that's a little bit different? Obviously, we have to have our emergency reserve in place. We have to have some protections. Is there anything different that we want to think about when we're when we're that stage of life? So so the way this is I'm glad we're talking about it and the way we're talking about this. Because everything is additive, and, and each stage builds upon the success of the previous stage. Um, th- you know, think back to grade school when you learned a, a basic math, right? You, you didn't get to multiplication and division until you mastered addition and subtraction, right? And so you didn't get onto algebra until you could do multiplication and, and, and division. So it's an additive situation. Skipping a step and not filling in the, 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 the boxes, the check marks in the previous stage creates problems down the road. And so for those people, yes, hopefully now we've established that that uh, emergency uh, savings account. We've hopefully ballooned it up to that three to six months situation. Now you're probably in the stage where you're earning more money. You have some discretionary income now, income that is above and beyond what your budget tells you you need to spend. Um, you have potentially the beginnings of, of, of a young family. This is where we tend to preach a protection first mindset in that go ahead and make sure that you have health insurance, make sure you, you, you go through open enrollment at your job every year, have your health insurance, uh, see what benefits they offer in terms of disability protection, life insurance, um, you know, things like that. Uh, then you need to also make sure that it's sufficient. In a lot of cases, it won't be. Uh, you'll need to supplement what you get through work through some private uh, things, a private disability policy, a private life policy. Um, make sure if you own a home, make sure you have the proper home owners, make sure if you own cars and have the proper uh, auto insurance. Um, once you have the protection element set and that is in place, then you can start looking at saving through your employer-sponsored retirement plan, uh, whether it be a 401k, a 403b. Um, some of these options tend to come with uh, uh, deposits from the employer. You're going to want to take advantage of those. Uh, if you have further discretionary income, you can start to think about investing or savings in other areas that may or may not have a market uh, a bend to it. Uh, but again, everything is out of it. You can't really get successfully to the next step and beyond until you've completed the, the previous steps. Got it. And then, uh, you know, we'll go through that phase of life. We're saving, we're accumulating, we're in that accumulation phase. And then we start heading into the, you know, near retirement ages. Now, when you want to stop working and be able to live on what you've accumulated. And we call that the pre-retiree retiree phase. What are some of the different things that we're thinking about during that phase of our life? So in, in, in pre-retiree phase, you're typically about 10 years away from retirement. Um, you start to have a different mindset in terms of your risk tolerance and your risk capacity. The older we get, theoretically, the less risk tolerant we are because we have less time to make up for good, bad days, bad weeks, bad months, bad years in the market. Um, coincidentally, your risk capacity should grow because you should have saved additional assets over that period of time and you can withstand an up or down day, week, month, year in the market. Um, so managing the changing risk tolerance and risk capacity of an aging client is something you should, uh, of an aging uh, uh, pre-retiree is something that is probably foremost in mind. Questions you should be asking yourself, do I have enough? What uh, distribution strategies should we be beginning to think about, even though retirement is probably five to 10 years away, 
What should we begin to be thinking about so that we can arrange the chess pieces on the board of life to make sure that things move as efficiently as possible when the time comes? Great. And then and then you're in retirement, right? And and talk to us about retirement distribution, like when you're in retirement, and then also that that difficult thing to think about estate planning. Where do we want what we've accumulated to go? And and people hate to speak about that, but as you talk about, it's very important. Sure. So so let's talk about retirement first, and we'll talk about estate planning. So retirement is again you you used you filled in the buckets of every uh, stage, uh, hopefully heading into this. And so you answered the questions: Do I have enough? If the answer was no in the previous pre-retiring stage, then you can't get the retiring stage. You got to keep working, right? So if we have enough, now it's how do we set these distribution models up that we've been working on, hopefully with our advisors or, or, or on our own the last five to 10 years, how do we now implement them to make them work best for us? That's number one. Number two, you're gonna also have to consider some of the governmental programs, social security, Medicare, things like that. Are we set up properly for a potential health emergency down the road? Have we set aside money on top of what we think we'll need for our budget to pay for the eventual uh, uh, maladies of, of, of health as we get older. Let's face it, typically the older you get, the less healthier you are. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something you have to think about. Now from an estate planning situation, um, everyone should have an estate plan, not just the wealthy. Estate planning, a lot of people make the mistake and they think estate planning is just to make sure that we pay the least amount of estate taxes. The truth of it is most families don't pay estate taxes. Uh, uh, most people do not have the wealth that necessitates an estate tax. A, a mere couple thousand families a year fall victim to the estate tax. But estate planning talks about you, while you're able to, determining who gets what and how they get it. That's a very important thing. And so uh, people with uh, uh, assets that don't necessarily qualify for the estate tax should still have a plan in place for the eventual distribution of their assets. Um, every state you live in has a plan for you. If you don't make one yourself, you just may not agree with what your particular particular state has for you. Mm-hmm. Why not, while you can, take the, the the reins and make the decisions yourself? Absolutely. So, and then uh, there's also one thing that I think often is forgotten about, and that's healthcare decisions. There's there's some products and services that are out there to help inform others what you want. If something happens, can you talk quickly about those estate planning documents? Yeah. So, so there's healthcare directives. Um, you can go ahead and and dictate out. Hey, if I have no quality of life, if there is no uh, ability for me to come back from whatever illness there is, don't keep me on a ventilator past X number of days. Go ahead and pull the pull the plug, if you will. Um, Again, this is if you can control these decisions, you should control them while you can. Um, I can tell you as, as a practitioner, I have seen uh, clients not take, take this seriously, not do this, and then they're left on on life support while the children bicker about mm-hmm. how long do we that on life support. And it becomes a, 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 it's, it's an unnecessary, difficult thing on, on the children, and it ends up, it ends up creating a, a, a tough family dynamic. Got it. So, all right. So this has been fantastic so far because we're, we're talking about all the different phases of life. And now we're going to talk about two things, two general topics. Number one, taxes. And I know you have a great way to explain taxes. But in addition to taxes, we're going to start talking about the different products that exist in, in, the, in the universe 
and where those products might fit. And again, the theme of the Institute of Financial Wellness, getting there. How do these different products help us get there? And there might be a little bit different for all of our different audience members. But at the same note, there's only so many products and services that are out there to help us achieve our goals. So let's let's first talk about the tax. You call it, I believe, the tax triangle. And it just talks about how different things are taxed and when they're taxed. Can you help us walk through that? Because taxes, we find, are one of the most prevalent things issues and concerns that so many of our audience members have. Sure. sure. So I would love to take credit for it. The tax control triangle is not something I created. It was something I was taught 22 years ago, my first day on the job, uh, fresh out of college at um, uh, uh, American Express Financial Advisor, right? A firm that no longer even exists. Um, and it's, it's, it's a well-known concept. Um, it's taught kind of throughout financial services, throughout financial planning, because it's, it's, it's grounded in a base of understanding when and how things are taxed. And so, uh, primarily, we'll talk about two taxes. We'll talk about income taxes, and we'll talk about uh, capital gains taxes. And so income taxes are um, uh, you actively earn an income at work. You owe the federal government and potentially your state, depending upon where you live, a portion of the income you earn. Um, it's a progressive tax. In most cases, in the federal government, it's a progressive tax, meaning the more you earn, the higher percentage you'll pay. Uh, some states are progressive, some are not. Some don't have a, a, a state taxes. Um, capital gains taxes are related to investments. Buy an investment for $10, sell it later for $20, you'll be taxed on the profit, that $10 profit. Uh, short-term capital gains are if you held the investment for less than one year. Long-term capital gains are if you held the investment for one year or longer, and they're different rates. Uh, at this time, short-term capital gains are taxed as if they were ordinary income, so you earned it as if it was uh, 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 income uh, in the previous example we talked about. Long-term capital gains, your tax rates can be, depend upon your ordinary income tax bracket, it could be zero, it could be as much as 23.8%. Um, so let's talk about the tax control triangle because this is a good basic understanding, not product discussion, but a good basic understanding of the different tax uh, 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 ramifications, the different tax uh, delineations of accounts. And so um, if you imagine a triangle, in the bottom left-hand corner, we have uh, tax deferred. On the top, we have taxable. On the on the bottom right hand, we have tax free. So you can either have a taxable investment, a tax deferred investment, or a tax free investment. Tax deferred is the if we talk about retirement savings, tax deferred is the most well known uh, uh, retirement savings vehicle. This is what everybody uh, tends to use. This is the stuff we typically see at work. Employer sponsored retirement plans. We use pre-tax money in, so as you earn an income, you defer that income. You're not taxed federally or statewide on that income. The account uh, uh, grows tax deferred, meaning every time you receive a dividend or a capital gain, you are not taxed. And then when you take the money out in retirement, you'll pay ordinary income tax rates on the entirety of the distribution. These are gonna be things like 401ks, IRAs, 403bs, Simples, SEPs, things like that. Um, great area uh, uh, for current tax savings. If you believe you'll be in a lower tax bracket in retirement, it's a great area because you'll, because of the progressive federal tax system in the U.S., you end up paying less taxes later if you have a lower income in retirement than you did while you were working. Now, Jason, sorry to interrupt, but uh, you know, you're getting me excited. <laughs> but you know, this is something that we talk about all the time because so many people think, 
I don't want to pay taxes now. Let me get them inside these these 401ks and so forth. And if you're in potentially a higher tax bracket later, that's not necessarily the right move. And we all think to ourselves, well, we'll be in a lower tax bracket because we're going to be making a little bit less in retirement. But but tax rates could go up. And with the federal deficits the way they are, that's a big piece of controversy that sure. is, is important to consider. Sure. So, so even, you're absolutely right. Even if you even if you make the the um, naive assumption that over the course of your of your working career and retirement, which you know depending on how old you are, could span 30, 40, 50, 60 years, that tax rates won't change. Um, your income will, right? 30-year-olds who, who are in the same profession tend to make more than 20-year-olds, 40-year-olds tend to make more than 30-year-olds, 50-year-olds tend to make more than 40-year-olds. Um, and so because of the progressive system, the tax system. The older you are, the more you make, the higher the percentage you'll pay. And so rules of thumb, and again, rules of thumb are great starting points, but they need to be individualized for the, for the individual. But rules of thumb will say the younger you are and the less money you make, the less valuable a tax-deferred vehicle is for you. Because yes, you get a small tax break today, but you're going to potentially pay more later when you take an income out after your income has risen and your standard of living has risen as well. You know, the, the idea that uh, we will retire in our 60s and go back to living the way we lived in our 20s, right? Futons uh, uh, and ramen, I'm not gonna do that in my 60s. I've, I've, I've gotten used to a, a, a standard of living that is higher than what it was in my 20s and 30s. Right. Um, and because of that, I will need more income in retirement than I needed in my 20s or 30s. I may not need as much income in retirement as I needed in my 40s, 50s, and early 60s, but I will certainly need more than I needed early. And that, therefore, I could be upside down on that on the government's uh, uh, on the government's program here. Small tax break in my 20s and 30s, high tax bracket distributions in my 60s. Um, again, rules of thumb that you need to that you need to use. You know, you need to individualize for people. Great. Um, so, so, but again, these are very popular because this is done at work, right? It comes out of my paycheck. I don't take constructive receipt of the dollars. I don't have to write you a check, Eric, for $10,000 a year of savings. That's very hard emotionally for a lot of people to do, but if it just disappears out of my paycheck and I never see it, it's really easy to do, right? Mom always said, save 10% of your, of your paycheck. How, how much easier is it to do than just to let the, 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 the payroll company at work do it? I never see the money. Um, and you might get matching and things like that, which add to the benefit of, of 401ks and 403ds and employer-sponsored plans. Um, so that's tax deferred. Um, what you want to be careful of is you want to make sure that you do not overload yourself disproportionately into this area, because to your point, tax rates change on you, and down the road, you could be upside down on that on that give and take with the government. And unfortunately, it's it's something that you can't. It's hard to move the Titanic, right? Once you've gotten there, you've gotten there. Um, uh, then the next piece in, in the upper part of the triangle is taxable. So here we're going to use after-tax dollars. So Eric goes to work, he earns his income, he pays his taxes, he saves his money, and he has after-tax dollars to invest in. Whatever he invests in, whether it be a savings account, a CD, a stock, a bond, a mutual fund, whatever you choose, real estate, whatever you choose to invest in. If you receive dividends and interest payments, you'll receive what's called a 1099 at the end of the tax year. You'll pay uh, potentially ordinary income tax rates on your dividends and interest. 
And then we go back to the capital gains discussion, right? You buy something for $10, you sell it for 20, you're gonna owe tax on that $10 gain. It might be short term, it might be long term, depending upon your, your holding period. Um, these, are, these are excellent places to save money because it's completely liquid. You get no tax benefit to invest, you pay your taxes along the way, and once you pay your taxes on a dividend and reinvest it, it becomes your, your it becomes basis. Meaning, you will now only pay taxes if that dividend grows in value. Um, totally liquid. You can get to it at any time. No punishment from the government to do so. Unlike tax deferred in the bottom left hand corner, where if you need that money prior to retirement, prior to age fifty nine and a half, with the exception of a couple uh, of, of, of minor uh, um, um, forgivenesses. Uh, you're going to pay penalties and taxes to get to those dollars. In the non, in the uh, non, in the taxable bucket, you don't have those those um, requirements from the government. Um, but again, you're paying your taxes as you go. Uh, last one, and this is a, a relatively seldom used bucket because people just don't know about it, is the tax-free bucket. So in the bottom right-hand corner, you have again after-tax dollars go in. So Eric goes to work, he, he earns his money, he pays his taxes, he saves his money, he now invests in. Uh, uh, any of these handful of vehicles inside the tax-free bucket, the money grows tax-deferred. So as you get dividends, as you get interest, as you get capital gains, you pay no taxes. And then when you make distributions, the distributions come out completely tax-free. Your principal, your earnings, everything will come out tax-free. Um, this is going to be Roth IRAs, uh, Roth, Roth 401ks, uh, and in some situations, some permanent uh, life insurance uh, cash values. Um, Issues with the Roth IRAs is that if you earn a certain income, the government won't let you put money into it. Uh, Roth 401ks are great. Not every employer uh, has a Roth option, even though they're becoming more popular. Uh, so again, um, limits into how much you can put into some of these things, depending depend upon your income, depending upon your, your uh, employer's uh, plan capability. Um, if you use cash value life insurance, uh, depending upon your health rating, you may not even qualify to get the life insurance, and so you know, that, that could be a hindrance. Um, but this is a, a seldom used area because people just don't know about it. And, and so what I'm hearing is there's basically three buckets. That's why the hence the triangle. And from what I'm hearing from you is that it's not about having which one's the best. It's about maybe just like we diversify our, our investments, we need to diversify our tax uh, situation as well. Is that Fair. Right. I, I, yeah, absolutely. A great example is if you, if you work in an industry where you're not completely salaried, right? You're not making X thousands of dollars a year and you can count on that each and every year where your income goes up or down. In some years, uh, it may be more beneficial for you to defer into your traditional 401k and get the tax break because you happen to be in a high income year. Mm -hmm. In other years, it may make sense because you're in a low income year to defer money into the Roth 401k if your company gives you that option. Um, but again, whenever we're working with that bottom left uh, tax deferred, we want to be deferring at our highest income levels to get our highest current tax break, and then hopefully being in a lower tax bracket in retirement so that we get a high deferral, pay less in taxes in the distribution. The idea of having money in some form in all three pieces of, of the triangle is you now have more control as to what, where you take money from when in terms of taxes. If all you have is money saved for retirement in the tax deferred bucket, you are forever at the mercy of the tax system at the time you take the money out. If you have money in the other areas and tax rates go up significantly in retirement, you can pause taking money out of there and access your other two areas. 
Um, if you're in very low tax uh, uh, brackets in, in uh, retirement because tax rates were lowered, you can access more money out of there and uh, out of your tax deferred bucket and pay less in taxes in total. Excellent. That's just great information and so many financial professionals don't discuss these these items. So many consumers we find are not aware of these different tax con- triangle uh, and different controls. So thank you for giving that. Now we're going to shift and we're going to talk about some basic products that are out there. And remember, uh, audience members, these products can fit into these different triangles in different ways. So let's let's tackle the first product, which are stocks. And just give us the basics of, you know, what is a stock? And, and more importantly, why and when do we choose a stock? And how does that potentially help us get there a little bit earlier? So uh, stocks are pieces of ownership of publicly traded companies. And so uh, if you, and I'm going to use Apple a lot in these examples, uh, uh, if you own 100 shares of Apple, you own a fractional ownership in the company. You have voting rights more than likely. You are uh, uh, you have the right to receive uh, your fractional amount of their dividend that they will distribute on an annual basis. Uh, and uh, the stock price of Apple can go up or down based upon the company's performance. Um, stocks tend to be um, on, on the, the, the spectrum of aggression from uh, least volatile to most volatile, stocks will tend to be for the volatile side on that parameter. Um, uh, but, uh, but historically, stocks tend to have the highest average rate of return. Again, on that parameter, if we talk about cash and bonds and, and other things like that. Um, uh, they, when would you use a stock? So um, again, everything depends, right? Uh, uh, rules of thumb are, 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 again, to be used as a starting point and then, and then brought down to the individual's level. But um, stocks you tend to use when a person has a risk tolerance level that they can tolerate emotionally, the ups and downs of the day-to-day movement of that stock or the market or, or, or what have you. Um, stocks also tend to perform their best in long periods of time. Um, if you have a goal where you'll need the money in a relatively short period of time, six months, 12 months, two years, you might want to limit or eliminate your, your exposure to stocks because the shorter the period of time with an equity-based investment, the more volatile it can be. Over longer periods of time, we can be more predictive of, of the outcome. Excellent. And um, you know, one of the things to shift to while we're talking about stocks, and we're going to shift into bonds in a minute, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, a fair assumption over a long period of time in a well-diversified stock portfolio might be you know, 8 maybe 9%. That's fair? Yeah, I, I, don't quote me, but I believe over the last 15 years, the S&P 500, which is a, a, a very diversified, uh, a large cap domestic index, I believe it's earned around 9% over the last 50 years on average. Now, average and actual are, are, can be very different, but right. um, uh, uh, over long periods of time, yeah, high single digit, low double digit would be what what a, a um, acceptable targeted rate of return would be. Perfect. So let's just put that in the back burner because I'm going to come back to that with with something that you know, uh, the rule of 72, and show people the difference that it could make if they're diversified properly. So shift right now. Talk about bonds. Where do they fit in? How do they help us get there? And um, go there. So bonds are kind of the opposite of stocks in that. Um, you don't own anything, uh, you don't own a piece of the company. When you issue a bond to a company, you are lending money to that company. And so um, if, if when you purchase a bond from, again, I'm going to keep using Apple. You purchase a bond from Apple, 
You are bar- you are lending money to Apple. Apple is borrowing money from you. They are promising to pay you a stated rate of interest. Uh, they may pay it quarterly. They may pay it semi-annual. They may pay it annually. And then they're also promising to return what's called par value at the end of the bond. So if you have a 10-year bond for $100,000 and it's a, a 3% interest, that means Apple, in our example, is going to pay you $3,000 of interest every year, 3% on $100,000. And at the end of the 10 years, they're going to give you back your $100,000. So you don't participate in Apple's upside in that situation. Apple uh, uh, does significantly a, a bigger business over the next 10 years. You're not going to participate in that. You're not an equity owner. You don't own stock. You, have, you own a bond. You own the debt instrument. Um, conversely, if Apple goes out of business, uh, stockholders are Last typically line. wiped out in that situation. Bondholders will find themselves on a on a priority list of who's to be repaid uh, back first. Uh, uh, when these things happen, bondholders they get shafted too, but uh, they get shafted a lot less than stockholders do. Um, bonds are part of a well diversified portfolio. When someone does not have high end risk tolerance, when someone is more moderate or more conservative. You would blend bonds into the portfolio to lessen the overall volatility of the portfolio. Uh, but remember, risk-reward works like a seesaw. If we want high reward, we have to be willing to accept a high level of risk. If we want a high level of safety, we have to be willing to accept a low level of reward. So you know, there's, there's unfortunately, a lot of people want the unicorn. They want high safety, high reward. That only existed when Bernie Madoff was in business. We <laughs> saw how that ended, right? Right, so, exactly. Um, uh, it, it, the, old, the old adage, if it's too good to be true, certainly exists. Um, uh, high reward necessitates high risk. High safety necessitates low reward. Bonds will help lower the ceiling, lower your potential, but increase your floor. It'll make the portfolio less volatile. Now, um, what would you say on a corporate bond? Let's say somebody holds that for a long period of time. We talked about you know eight nine percent in a in a stock diverse stock portfolio, the S and P five hundred. What are our expectations when we you know long term invest in bonds? So right now, as as of this airing, so the thirteenth of October, the ten year U S Treasury is yielding about one point five percent, and so. Um, U.S. Treasuries, AAA rated, um, no no concern of default there. Uh, and if you were to purchase a, a 10-year Treasury from the U.S. government and hold it for 10 years, you can expect about 1.5% a year yield interest payment. Um, doesn't mean that the value of your bond won't move up or down during the course of, of the next 10 years. Uh, as interest rates go up, bond prices will go down and vice versa. If interest rates go down, bond prices will go up. And so... Um, in a low interest rate environment, which is what we have now, um, there's more risk to bond prices shrinking as interest rates increase. Um, if we were in a higher interest rate environment, uh, there'd be the, the opportunity for bond prices to go upward as interest rates decline. And so, you know, at this stage, uh, I, I believe the the, the uh, corporate bond index is, is paying a little bit better than the government one, not terribly much so might be in the 2.5% range for a 10-year bond, depending upon uh, the rating of the company. Uh, the lower you go in ratings, so from AAA to AA to single A to B plus and so on and so forth, the lower you go, the higher the yield you will get. 
but it comes with a risk. It comes with a higher risk of default. You know, again, same the seesaw situation, right? You want more return, you got to take more risk. And so, um, uh, bonds are, are in comparison to stocks, bonds are considered safe investments. Um, by no which way, shape, or form is, is any bond uh, uh, perfectly safe and, and there's zero default risk. You know, the U.S. government, we, we don't believe it will default, but we can't say that there's zero percent chance it will. So there's always a measure of risk, but typically you'll see that the, the risk you take in bonds is, is negligible compared to the risk you'll take in stocks. And, and again, the return will be smaller than, than what we would expect in stocks. So can I get a number from you? Um, maybe you know you might not be familiar you probably are because you got all those designations but um you know 50 years from past track record what are corporate bonds done in comparison yeah. to the s p 500. it's an unfair question and i don't want to mislead people because mm -hmm. if you look at how interest rates have moved in the last 50 years mm -hmm. interest rates have generally trended downward in the last 50 years uh, you know you and i are both too young to to, to, to know this but uh, uh, to have lived it, but interest rates in the 60s and 70s were significantly higher than they are today. Uh, you, know, you were getting mortgages in the 16, 17, 18 percent range. If you get a mortgage now higher than four percent, you know you're, you're concerned. Saying, "Wait, I, you know that doesn't make any sense." Interest rates have generally drifted down over the last 50 years. With that, as interest rates have gone down, bond prices have gone up. And that has created a tailwind to bond returns over the last 50 years. A tailwind that won't exist for the next 50 years, right? With the 10-year treasury yielding 1.5 right now, it can only go down so much before it actually yields zero or negative. Mm -hmm. So um, historically, uh, corporate bonds last 50 years have averaged in the 6% range. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that is realistic to think we'll, we'll see that as an average going forward. We might have some years in which it does that. Um, you might have some years in which they're dead flat. You might have some years in which corporate bonds produce a negative because the increase in interest rates were enough to drag the prices down more so than what their interest payments were. Um, I, I think going forward, a comfortable expectation would be in the two to three percent range. Got it. Okay. So which which leads me, and I just want to give people and paint the picture for people, is that you know having the right tax bucket having the right investment bucket, what could that mean to, to our audience members? And and there's a thing called the rule of 72, not a perfect science what I'm about to say because we don't know what the future holds and rates and things like that. But you know, let's just take that 9% in, in stocks and let's make believe we have 30 years uh, to wait or 36 years even for that matter and we had $100,000. The way you figure out how much that money will double to, or, or grow to is that you take nine and you divide it into 72, which is eight. And that's the number of years it will take for your money, in this example, $100,000 to double. So if we get 9% in, in theoretically our stock investment portfolio, whatever sum of money we have will double every eight years. So if we go out for, let's call it 32 years, our money will double four times. Our 100 becomes 200, 400, 800, 1.6 million dollars that's really nice growth but let's say we didn't have a good um, knowledge on how to take advantage and diversify and, and and we just put everything that we had all into bonds and and the patterns repeated themselves and now all of a sudden again we don't know what the future holds and we're by no means promising returns and things just trying to illustrate some concepts but let's say we divide four 
into 72, okay? Um, Jason, you're the, you're the math wizard. What do we got, 18? 18, yeah. right? Okay, so 18. So now instead of our money doubling every eight years, our money will double every 18 years. So our 100,000 really, if it might double to, to, to 400,000. We were at 1.6 before and we're at 400,000 at best now. So I, I, I illustrate this because when you take those kinds of things into consideration, the tax triangle, where your investments are put for the certain buckets that you have, it could make a big, big difference in, in all of us achieving our goals and how can we, quote unquote, get there uh, more or less efficiently. So thank you so much for that great illustration about stocks, bonds, the tax triangle, really, really uh, helpful information. And, and, and I only want you to do this very quickly, Jason, but you know that you have mutual funds and you have managed money. Just that's a way of getting these stocks and bonds in different packages. Talk about the difference between those two packages and, and what may make sense for different types of people. Sure. So, so they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, mutual funds are a great way to take small dollars and have them diversified out. And so you can buy most diversified mutual funds that can hold anywhere up to 200 different stocks, a couple hundred different bonds inside of it. You could buy into them for as little as $500. Now, if you try to take that $500 and go buy 200 different stocks, it's not possible, right? Uh, if you try to take that $500 and buy couple hundred different bonds, it's not possible to do. So mutual funds are a great way of diversifying out potentially smaller dollar amounts. Now, it doesn't mean mutual funds are only used to invest small dollar amounts. Mutual funds are an easy way to get access to professional management that, uh, um, you know, again, takes a lot of burden off of the individual investors to, to operate. Um, managed money uh, and again, they're not mutually exclusive. Mutual funds can be part of a managed portfolio, but managed portfolios tend to be where an advisor or a team of advisors will, for a fee, go ahead and manage the portfolio to your uh, risk tolerance, risk capacity, time horizons, goals, and objectives. And they will go ahead and discretionarily handle the day-to-day -day operations, the day-to-day decision-making. We buy Ford and sell GM. Again, I'm just using those as examples. Um, they'll do that without your, without necessarily your your approval on each and every day because, frankly, you don't have the time to, 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 to sit and approve that. They'll be handling that for you. Um, and again, mutual funds are not mutually exclusive of managed accounts. You can use mutual funds inside managed accounts. So there's a little bit more customization in professionally money management than per se a mutual fund. A mutual fund, you're part of a, of a bigger picture, not as much unique individualized experiences. Yeah, and, and we talk, so we, we focus a lot about taxes. And so mutual funds in non-tax deferred accounts. So go back to the triangle, go to the top of that triangle. Mutual funds, when you own mutual funds in non-retirement, non-tax protected accounts, they could have negative or adverse tax consequences for you. Um, when you buy into a mutual fund, you are buying into the previous history of that mutual fund. You are now a shareholder in that investment trust, meaning if they have, if they bought, again, I'm using Apple, if they bought Apple way back when, way before you were an investor, but they bought Apple uh, for, and I'm making up numbers there, they bought Apple for $25 a share. Apple's about $140 a share today. 
So there's that big capital gain that's inside, right? They pay 25, it's worth 140 right now. If they decide after you have bought in to sell Apple now, they're generating a $115 per share capital gain. That, that capital gain will now be distributed to every shareholder as of a certain record date. If you are a shareholder as of that record date, you're gonna receive your ownership, your portion of that capital gain, whether or not you benefited from it or not. So if you just bought that mutual fund, you weren't there when Apple was purchased all those years ago, but you are now owner of shares in the investment trust. You receive your pro rata share of the capital gain distribution um, just by virtue of you being an owner in that mutual fund. So in non-qualified accounts, mutual funds can be um, uh, they can be tax problems, if you will, um, which is why you have to do a little bit deeper dive into some of these mutual funds. You have to make sure that that uh, their their inherent capital gain is, is in an acceptable range. You have to see what their traditional uh, annual capital gains distribution have been. If you don't, you could be pretty surprised. You also have to be careful about when you buy them. Um, uh, right now, and, and I don't know when the podcast will air or how often will air it, but you know, here we are in the middle of October. You tend to see capital gains distributions get announced in November and made in December. Now is a questionable time to be buying into mutual funds in the, in the non-qualified tax portion, that upper uh, upper tip of the of the triangle, because you're so close to being part of that capital gain distribution. You may have a taxable event put to you that is adverse to you. You weren't there for the gains, but you're part of the of the taxation. Got it. So uh, bottom line, we don't want to be taxed on money we didn't even realize the benefit of. Right, and exactly. That, that could happen. Yeah, it, it, so it, just, it, it, it means for the, the do-it-yourselfers or for the people working with advisors, there's there's a lot more to picking a mutual fund than just looking at the return and saying, oh, wow, this one's returned a lot last year. Let's go buy it. Exactly. So now uh, we're going to we're gonna really utilize that concept that you said before about building blocks. So we've been building up. Where we've talked about stocks, bonds, mutual funds, taxes, and all those kinds of things. And now we're going to jump into another side of, of things called annuities. And annuities, which sometimes are controversial, I don't understand why, and we can go into that if, if we need to, but, but really – you know, there's different kinds of annuities. They're 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 used for different phases of, and we'll talk about what phase of life they're for. But talk to us about um, first. Let's start with the very basic fixed annuity. Sure. So, uh, real quick, to your point of annuities being controversial, um, 22 years as an advisor, I know you've been doing it longer than me. Um, I am a believer that every product has its participant. Every product has the right person at the right time, where it's the right fit. I do not believe that universally every product or any product is good for everybody. That's, right. that's I mean, probably the closest thing you come to is a savings account mm -hmm. or a checking account. I and mean, even they have, have negative drawbacks. But I'm, I'm a believer that with the exception of Madoff, mm -hmm. there's no product that is bad for everybody and there's no product that is great for everybody. Again, you use rules of thumb and you, and you work down to the individual based off a starting point of that rule of thumb. A fixed annuity is... Uh, a promise from an insurance company to pay a fixed rate of interest for a specified period of time. Um, it's very similar to a CD that you would get at a bank. It's uh, similar to a bond that you would you would purchase uh, from a from a, a government or an institution. The difference is uh, annuities provide tax deferral of the interest earned, and so 
as you earn interest inside a fixed annuity, you will not pay taxes on that interest as you earn it until you take the money out of the annuity. A CD, if it's not owned in a retirement account, you may have a five-year CD. Every year they pay interest to you, even though it hasn't come out of a CD, you will still pay taxes on the interest that's earned in that CD if it's not in a retirement account. Mm. Inside of an annuity, whether it's in a retirement account or not, it's inside of a tax-deferred wrapper. As you earn the interest, you won't pay the taxes until you take the money out. Got it. Okay, great. So conservative, tax-deferred. If I had to bet, uh, I'd say that you and I would agree that that's more for those pre-retirees, nearing retirement, those kinds of people, because there are some no, limitations. Again, again rule, rule of thumb, it's going to, you know, there's a thing called life cycle investment theory where um, as we get older, our risk tolerance declines. And so um, the younger we are, the more capable we, we are to, to tolerate the ups and downs of, of, of risk-based assets. The older we get, the less tolerant we become. So rule of thumb, you would see fixed annuities for those older people who are less risk tolerant. Again, rule of thumb is just somewhere you start and you work down to the individual. Um, but yeah, that typically uh, those would, would, would be found in portfolios of clients who are less risk tolerant. Got it. And let's shift into uh, fixed indexed annuities, which are definitely different than just regular fixed annuities. Right. Right. So fixed index annuities provide some level of market exposure uh, where they will invest the dollars in a, a market-based, a risk-based investment. Uh, the catch here is they, in most cases, not all, but in most cases, they will guarantee you against loss over a certain period of time. So if the market-based investment does very poorly and loses money, they will protect you against loss. The, 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 the caveat, the other part of that seesaw, is they will tend to limit the upside uh, reward that you can earn through that market-based investment. So they won't give you unfeathered uh, returns like you would get if you took the risk yourself. But because they're cutting off your ceiling at some level, whether this be through uh, participation rates or through uh, caps or things like that, they will guarantee you that you cannot lose a principle uh, if you follow certain sets of rules. And so um, this is kind of, we talk about where does this fall, in, uh, who would use this, where does this fall in terms of risk reward. This is slightly higher on the risk parameter than a fixed annuity uh, because the return, the outcome is not guaranteed like it would be in a fixed annuity. Fixed annuity, you're getting paid a certain amount of interest every year for the fixed term of the annuity. Here, it could be a variable rate of return based upon the success or lack thereof of the underlying market-based investment, but it's not exactly all the way off at the top of the spectrum because you are guaranteed in most cases against principal loss. Excellent. And then the last one that that we talk about are are variable annuities, which uh, they tend to have. You know, you talked about stocks and bonds before, and it's almost like now you have an annuity that has that tax wrapper and that retirement wrapper, but it's also investing in very similar items as the stocks and bonds. Um, yep. Add a little color to that. You're yeah. So, so you, you explained it really well. So a variable annuity will have mutual fund-like investments, they're called sub-accounts, that are balanced, uh, diversified, purpose, purposed investments that will, will cover different uh, areas of the overall market, bonds, stocks, international, domestic, growth, value, what have you. Um, uh, variable annuities are not protected against principal loss in general. They do not have a cap on them in general. So they will be further down the, the, the risk spectrum, further away from index annuities and fixed annuities. 
variable annuities like index annuities will come with certain optional riders that you can pay an extra fee for and, and get certain uh, protections. These protections can be uh, 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 accumulation protections where they'll guarantee a certain uh, outcome. Uh, they can be income uh, uh, guarantees where they'll guarantee a certain amount of income uh, for them. Um, uh, they can be very convoluted. They can be very difficult, uh, but they, the, uh, they can enhance the overall value for an individual uh, of reason of, of, to purchase these durable annuities. Excellent. So now we, we have annuities, which in, in, in some ways they really protect us from you know losing some money potentially, as you talked about, also from outliving our money, which is a very, very nice feature. On the flip side of that, offered by insurance companies are life insurance products. And life insurance products are, you know, you pay a fee if, if you're not here for you know, the primary purpose to protect your loved ones in, in many ways if something happens to you. And then we have the same kind of investment, underlying investment chassis, if you will. We have fixed, um, we have whole life, which is, is, is the closest to fixed. Universal, which is very similar to you know an interest rate kind of account, like a CD kind of a thing, paying a little bit more. And then we have the variable uh, life insurance policies, and we have the indexed universal life insurance policies. So all those different chassis in life insurance, just like in annuities, talk about where they fit in the spectrum, Jason, of that 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 time frame of our lives. Sure. So so first and foremost, with, with any insurance, life insurance product, there has to be the need for the insurance, right? Um, uh, while some of them do have um, accumulation-like characteristics, the need for insurance is always the primary reason to look at these, right? Um, so term insurance is the easiest. Uh, th this is, think of your auto insurance, think of your homeowners, right? These are uh, policies you purchase to protect uh, an asset, your home or your auto, um, and you hope to God you never use them, right? Because if you use them, it means you crashed your car or your home <laughs> burned down or something like that. And, you, and, and now the insurance company is going to try to make your whole. Well, in a term policy, if, if I'm the insured, my wife is the beneficiary, I purchased the term uh, coverage on myself because if my, I were to pass away, my family no longer gets has my income. They need money to live the, the life that they're used to living. Um, the problem is if, it, if we're cashing it in, it means I'm, I'm gone. So I, I, I happily pay my term premiums. I hope to God I never use them because it means I'm out of the picture, but it's there to protect my family in case, um, in case I'm not here, in case you know, something bad happens, heaven forbid. Um, uh, term can be used in any, in any uh, stage of life. You tend to see it most prevalent when people are younger. It has the least cost because there's no safety component attached to it and so it'll be your least expensive cost typically um, and it's it's there for a certain period of time um, I I personally will use term with uh, clients uh, to cover a period of time in which they're building their net their net worth um, if I'm replacing my income for my family there's a lot less income to replace at 60 years old than there is at 30 years old, right? Mm -hmm. 30 years old, I got 30 some odd years of income earning to, to replace. 60, I might have five more years to replace. Hopefully, by the time I'm 60, I've saved up enough of my income that if I were to pass away at that point, my family would have the money in the bank as opposed to needing it from the insurance company. Um, these other products that you mentioned, uh, a whole life, universal life, 
uh, uh, variable uh, universal life and uh, uh, equity index life. These are more permanent policies that are, are designed to have a permanent death benefit that would outlast that of a term. Term you'll find in one year, five year, 10 year, 15, 20, 30, even 40 year increments. But after those periods of time, it becomes cost prohibitive to keep the insurance. Permanent insurance on the other hand, tends to last permanently, as long as you either pay the subscribed premiums or the cash value inside of it is enough to, to uh, sustain the policy. That uh, tends to uh, be longer lasting than the term would be. Um, again, there are potential savings components inside of these vehicles, very similar to the annuity discussion we had, variable, a variable annuity, like variable life will have up and down movement based upon the success or lack thereof of the underlying variable investments inside of it. Whole life and universal life is typically a promise to pay from the, uh, the, the insurance company. And and then uh, the which one did we miss the uh, index universal index index yeah very I'm sorry very similar to index annuities in that there will be a floor uh, that they promise you uh, uh, and they will reduce your ceiling through caps or participation rates um, but again it's it's um, uh, uh, they're viable uh, uh, certainly for people who have less of a risk tolerance uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, motivation and are are. Uh, uh, looking to mitigate losses or eliminate losses and are willing to accept less of the return in that in that seesaw that we talked about earlier. Excellent. So now we're 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 nearing the end of uh, of our of our podcast, but we're also nearing the end of uh, you know our 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 lifespan or stage of life. And we're going to talk about distribution planning, okay? But more specifically, sort of the difference and the different things to think about when you're accumulating and distributing. And, and that tends to, to bring up the discussion of sequence of return risk, which is a risk that most people never even think about. It never crosses their mind. You know, you and I as, as certified financial planners and, and you as 30 other things that you have, uh, we think about these things and they're very important things. Talk about sequence of return risk and how it's, why it's so important to think about that in that last phase of life when you're distributing your assets. So, so let's go back to your example of the rule of 72, right? And we talked about how if you average 9% a year, you'll double your money every eight years. So you said, if I start with 100,000 and I've got 32 years to go, I should end up with 1.6 if I got 9% a year uh, because you double four times, right? Well, your example there is completely devoid of seedings of return risk. Why? Because you put a lump sum in one time, no money in or out of the portfolio, and you let it ride for 32 years. Okay. Um, once you start to have cash flows in or out of an investment, sequence of returns, when you get what return becomes incredibly important. So again, if I, if I just put a lump sum in, it doesn't matter when the returns come, I can jumble them all up and make them different. As long as they're all the same in every example, I'll end with the same dollar amount. Doesn't matter what order it's in. It doesn't matter what order. But the second I start to have a cash flow, either in or out, the order matters incredibly. And so, uh, so since we're, we're following the timeline, we're at retirement, we're talking about distribution, um, let's not worry about cash in, we'll worry about cash out, right? I'm taking money out of my investments to supplement my uh, uh, my my retirement income. Um, maybe I get Social Security, maybe I get a pension from work, whatever it is, I have to make up for the, the remaining need 
with the, the money I've saved all these years during my accumulation phase. So let's let's rewind the clock. Let's go back to January 1st, 2008. Okay. And let's imagine, Eric, you retired January 1st, 2008. You retired months in the very beginning of what was a financial crisis. You retired literally two or three months from the peak of the market in 2007 and what became a 15 month from January 1st uh, uh, to January 1st, 2008 to March 9th. 2009, a roughly a 15-month just torpedoing of the market. If you are, if you have a, a balanced portfolio, let's say two-thirds are in stock, one-third is, is in bonds, because that one-third in bonds, you didn't lose as much as the overall market, but you still took a pretty big beating over that 15 months. If on top of it, you are now taking out two, three, four percent of your portfolio to spend you are now going to, you're falling victim to what we call sequence of return risk. The fact that a big loss happened early in your retirement picture puts your retirement safety in jeopardy. Now, that's up to chance. I, I, I'm 43 years old right now. I've got 22 years to go to, to, to when I become 65 and, and you know, maybe that'll be my retirement. Day. I don't know, maybe I'll retire early. Maybe I will never retire. I don't know. But at 65, it's up to chance is if that first couple of years in retirement will be good years in the market or bad years in the market. It's nothing you can control. It's nothing I can control. As much as I would love to, I can't control it. Um, the problem with sequence of return risk is, like I said, completely out of your hands, you can't control it. Um, if you do not set yourself up to potentially avoid sequence of return risk, then you are completely at the mercy of chance. Mm -hmm. And maybe you get lucky and the bad years don't happen until you're eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 of retirement. Uh, maybe you get lucky and they don't happen at all. Not likely. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at the history of the market, um, we tend to have uh, a, a bear market, which is defined as a 20% correction on average every two and a half to three years. So you're going to have one in retirement. If you live 25, 30 years in retirement, you're going to have one mathematically, you're going to have several of them. Um, it's impossible to think the market will just consistently go up forever in perpetuity and you'll just be taken care of by the grace of, of, of the market. There are going to be bad days. Sequence of return risk is the highlight of how those bad days affect the overall health of your portfolio. Um, if you had a non-market correlated bucket, so a pool of money that is not related to the market, doesn't go up or down with the market, you can avoid sequence of return risk. A non-market correlated bucket, whether it be cash, uh, 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 let's use cash as an example. Cash may not earn much nowadays, but it is least, at least it is not suspect to the ups and downs of the market. And so if you were to have cash in 2008, and you just retired, and the market is crumbling, and your, your portfolio is declining in value, you don't have to exacerbate the problem by withdrawing from the portfolio to spend. You could withdraw from cash instead to spend and lead your portfolio to recover. Right. Well, well said, Jason. That's uh, one of those kind of blind spots, if you will, of retirement that people don't think about. But our audience members, you know, are going to be well aware of, of this kind of a risk.
And, and this goes back to what we were talking about in the life cycle stages. This is that pre-retiree when we talk about setting up distribution plans, not just waiting until the day you have your retirement party, you pack up your box at the office, you get your gold watch and you walk out. You need to start setting this stuff up 5, 10, 15 years away from that date so that when you get to that date, it's already done. It's ready to roll on autopilot as opposed to taking the chance that you're not in the middle of 08 when that day happens. And now you have to rearrange a lot of, uh, of chairs on the Titanic. Yep. Well, great. So now we're, we're really at the end of the, of the road, the end of the webinar. I'm sorry, the end of the podcast, but the, the also the end. And the only other phase of life that we don't really want to spend much time on because it's not very exciting is that estate planning and, and passing our, our assets on to our heirs. And there's a, you could do a whole course. Uh, there actually is a whole course on, on the certified financial planning curriculum of estate planning. But we'll leave our viewers with just the notion that Estate planning isn't only for people with millions and millions of dollars. Unless you want the state to dictate what happens to your money, uh, you need an estate plan because you automatically have one given to you by the state. And we want to make sure we have our, our health care surrogates. We want to make sure that you know our, our wills and, and if we need a trust that those are set up to make sure we get um, the, the money to our heirs that, that we want distributed our way. So with that, we're, 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 we're going to close. I'm, I want to summarize sort of, um, you know, I got to tell you, this is one of the, the, the most incredible um, podcasts that, that I feel like we've ever had uh, or will ever have because we, in essence, covered every single thing that's out there from the and how they fit into taxes, how they fit, fit in uh, to stages of life, um, to, to diversification, to sequence of returns. We covered a lot of things that, that you've studied and, and we've done a great job summarizing. And uh, I really feel really excited about the information that we're delivering to fulfill our mission. And you know, just let me state, you know, the mission of the Institute of Financial Wellness is to provide financial education that helps people live their best life. And this de generous donation of your time, Jason. I mean, just, just out of curiosity, Jason, seriously, if you had to add the hours that you've put into, you know, you're 43 years old, you started in the business at like 20, you know, in your, your, your early 20s, mm -hmm. how much time, I mean, this is going to be hard to calculate, but I mean, oh, we're yeah. talking, let, let's just say it this way, thousands of hours of studying oh, sure. and, and thousands of hours of counseling people on making smart financial decisions. So this is incredible information from an incredibly credible source. And we um, want to remind everybody again, when it comes to financial decisions, never say never, never say always, it depends. Thanks, Jason. And until next time, have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.